0: this money isn't for you, this is for your kids. If you actually do the right stuff. So when we look at kind of wealth gaps and what's the, if you could leave something for your kid to to help them go to college or get the start maybe that you didn't have, that this might start the same thing that my dad gave to me, right? Which was some capital, some care capital, right? And a way to go forward. And so I think people are made to own things. We are since creation to enjoy it and take care of it and if you don't own it as i say nobody washes a rental car you don't see people washing rental cars right unless you work for the rental car company
1: welcome to the faith-driven entrepreneur podcast if you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be a faith-driven entrepreneur then you're in the right place if you've been listening to the podcast for a while if you're brand new we want to make it possible for you to interact with the guests and ask questions each month we host a live interactive event called unmuted This is a chance to join the podcast guests live, interact with what they're sharing, and even talk to them directly. Check out the upcoming speakers and register at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org forward slash unmuted.
2: Welcome back, everyone, from wherever you are on the globe today to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast. We're so happy you're here with us. You know, if you've long wondered what your quote unquote calling in life might be then you're gonna really enjoy today's guest eric stumberg is an entrepreneur with expertise in services wireless technology but more importantly in helping people find their call at this stage of his christian and professional journey eric is leaning more fully into equipping the saints for and in their kingdom work in the marketplace through the church his company, and faithful relationships. Today, you'll get to hear him talk about all of that, as well as why he believes that business is theology. Let's listen in.
1: Welcome back to the Faith Driven Tomorrow Podcast here in our virtual studio suite and spa with William and Rusty. Gentlemen, good morning. A spa? What spa? Did I we? Don't know. Did it we upgrade? It seemed like it needed to go. <laughs> Studio Suite and Spa, you needed a third S, and I just went with Spa.
3: I can't believe we got an upgrade. Nobody told me. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, I like it. I like it. I like it. I it, do, too. It's, it's
2: kind of like, you know, we do sort of hang out and sort of, you know, um, yeah. in a jacuzzi it's not a jacuzzi but we mix things up we mix things
1: up I don't know what kind of mental picture our listeners have actually about <laughs> us at all even what we look at like I, I think that I'd like to think that most people think that I've got dreadlocks but I, I you know people don't know what we look like that, I, or I, where we're sitting I think yeah. people
2: make up stories about us is what they do they, do, I think they, they, they make, do make up their own stories
1: they make up their own story and I think that they should go with that storytelling is a big deal I think that that's so much about the entrepreneurial journey
2: it is. Right? It is. It is. And ability to tell the stories. I'm excited. I know William is too, about uh, today's guest, because we're going to hear about storytelling.
1: Yeah. Eric Stumberg is a guy who's completely leaned in to storytelling. He's got his own story. We're going to hear that. But he, more than anybody else, has done so much for telling the stories of entrepreneurs that are driven by their faith and doing it really, really, really well. And many of you will be familiar with his work. With Faith & Company, we have had a lot of fun working with that content from Faith & Company with our Right Now Media collaboration, the the FDE eight-part video series which we're going through and leading. I know, William, you're leading a group, right?
3: I am. It's been a ton of fun. You, know, you can sign up on faithdrivenentrepreneur.org, but yeah, we've got 15 entrepreneurs from around the country watching an eight-week series, and it's just been amazing to hear different stories of where people are, where God's calling them, the struggles they have, and these Faith & Go videos have been just instrumental in being able to share some of the stories of God's entrepreneurs out in the world.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I host a group, too, and we've got entrepreneurs in our group from around the world with South Africa and Uganda and even that foreign exotic country called Canada. Everybody gets together and we've got you know a three or four minute video, which we're going to hear about from Eric, and then about 10 to 12 minutes of teaching from J.D. Greer, who's a great friend of ours and a great pastor and very, very thoughtful about the space and then an opportunity to process that with fellow entrepreneurs. And so if that's interesting to you, we're going to be doing more classes coming up in March and then, I guess, every couple months throughout this year and then beyond. And also, some number of people that did it in the fall are now leading their own groups, which is kind of cool. But it all starts with story. God is weaving a story. Um, Eric, good morning. Welcome to the program.
0: Good morning, Henry. Morning, William. Morning, Rusty.
1: Thank you for being here. So we do want to get into what you've been able to do or what God's done through you at Faith and Company. But you, somewhere along the way, realize the power of story, and undoubtedly it's through your own story and what God's done in your life. So we'd like, with every one of our guests, to understand a bit about where you come from, where faith entered its way in into your life, and then before we talk about your having been so catalytic and telling the stories of so many other entrepreneurs, tell us your own. Who are you? Where do you come from? Please.
0: Yeah. So I'm Eric Stumberg. I'm the... Youngest of four siblings, and I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. I'm a fourth generation San Antonian. And so.
1: My grandmother was born in San Antonio. So, at some point in time, maybe our family's connected. It's a, close, cool.
0: it's a small city. So, one of the noteworthy facts of my ancestor was a 15 year old immigrant from Germany whose parents sent him to Texas to a better life without, by himself. By himself at 15? 15. So he came in through the Houston coast, and he served with General Sam Houston at the Battle of San Jacinto. He was Sam Houston's bugle bearer at 15 years old.
1: Wow. That's very cool. Do you so have we've been here a
0: long time. Uh, I don't have it with me, uh, but the bugle and General Houston gave his sabers. So we have a saber from him that we gave to the museum a generation well, Speaking of story, ago. there's a story.
1: So, yeah, so I'm uh, What did he So, so I want to talk about your story, but what, what do you do after you've been the bugle boy for Sam Houston? What do you do with the rest of your life?
0: So, the family had an inn in San Antonio. And so, when San Antonio was like, again, in the eight, early 1800s, it was the largest city in Texas. And so, right, because that was the mission frontier. And, and so, there was an inn and a stable. And so there's a street in San Antonio called Stumberg Street. And that's actually uh, where you enter, where you would park your horses and carriages and all that. And so uh, he became an entrepreneur. You're in a stable and an inn when you would come to do business in San Antonio.
1: Okay, very cool. All
0: right. So you got three
1: siblings. You're growing up in a family. Is it a Christian family?
0: Christian family. So I'm three generations of intact marriages, three generations of faith. So yeah, so I was super rooted in place, very rooted in family, and I have very rooted in kind of, I would say, uh, entrepreneurial heritage of business.
1: We were talking right before we went on about some of the different things we all had done in college that were semi-entrepreneurial. What was your first sense that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, and what, what did that look like?
0: So I don't know if it's entrepreneurship, but I love to work. So my grandfather had a construction business. And when I was 10 years old, that was my first job. And I worked as a mechanics helper, uh, in a diesel shop. I've got a picture of myself when I was 10 with steel toe boots and a hard hat. And I thought that was a great picture until my wife pointed out that, Hey, your zipper's unzipped. No way. So now that picture is ruined forever. And I was like, Photoshop. I really love that picture. Yeah. Photoshop. Like, but uh, I always loved to work and I always worked, you know, in the family business. So that's how I started uh, working when I was 10 and being part of, you know, that heritage. And so my dad was a super hard worker and grandfather on both sides of the family. So tell us about the story.
1: Another thing that we share, our, our faith in semi-San Antonio heritage, at least for me, yours is very, very significant, but is a background in entrepreneurship in telecom. So what is Tango Internet? How did it Yeah, get so
0: Tango Internet uh designs, builds and supports outdoor connectivity solutions, right? So we build Wi Fi networks for primarily outdoor hospitality venues. And it's evolved from that, but uh but primarily we're in forty nine states in Canada. Essentially we're we're the largest provider of, of uh, outdoor hospitality internet in the country. So
1: so there's a point in time where we were in 49 states with the podcast and we weren't in South Dakota. And then we went on a campaign to get some <laughs> listeners in South Dakota. Now that's a vibrant place for us. What's your state that you don't have?
0: Hawaii. I can't get RVs to drive to Hawaii. So that's the problem. Wow. So oh, maybe that's a Elon Musk thing if we can kind of shoot him over there under the ocean or something.
1: Yeah. Okay. So how did Tango get started?
0: So a precursor to that, I had... Been at UT School of Business, and then 95, 97, I worked for Dell Computer, and in the late 90s, they were thinking about this thing called Wi-Fi. So didn't know really a lot about what it was, but they knew they were losing market share to Apple and the K through 12 notebook space. So they figured out how do we, you know, how do we sell more notebooks? Here's this wireless thing. Go figure it out. And so me and a few people kind of had a skunkworks project, and I learned about Wi-Fi at Dell, and so. I left Dell in 2001, in March and I didn't know what I was I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I knew I was kinda done. But I loved the Wi-Fi, the ability to connect people. You know, that old model, Henry, is like they used to have docking stations and you'd go to a meeting and you'd do work and you'd go back to your docking station and so but Wi-Fi made it to where you didn't have to dock. And if you were in a meeting that wasn't productive, you could make it productive, right? Because you were still connected, you know, you could check out of the meeting and check back in. So that's maybe not a good motivation, but I learned about it then, and I really felt like I started to work with airports at early stages about the business traveler, the travel path and how they could stay connected all along the path. And that was really compelling for me. At the time, Dell was really commoditizing things, they weren't building new things and it was very nascent, so I felt like, I really want to build something related to this, and so I left. I knew I had about 18 months of technical knowledge. I had about 12 months of money. And so I took six months off because I was burnt out to figure out what I wanted to do next. I went to Mexico and went down to San Miguel de Allende. I had a friend whose parents had an apartment. I took language school and I turned off my phone. So my only connection to the outdoor world was Internet cafes. So the name Tango Internet means I have Internet. So that's how I connected to the people and things that were important to me was going to internet cafes. I was looking for, I knew I wanted to be on the front end of a startup and lots of things. 9-11 was that year. So right, capital markets dried up. And I remember being in Tuff Kinnaman, Pennsylvania, Henry, I don't know if you remember where that is, right outside of Philly. My brother's business partner had died. I'm sitting there with my brother the day before the funeral, sleeping. He's 6'4", so we're in this upstairs room. His He's like, Eric, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know, Herb, you know, I really feel like this Wi-Fi is going to be big, but I can't find anybody that wants to do it the way I want to do it. And he goes, well, I mean, you said you're one of the smartest people in the world. Your brothers are great like that and uh, around Wi-Fi. So why don't you do it? Why don't you start something? And literally in that November night in Philadelphia, just outside of Philadelphia, I got commissioned by my brother to start this company. So launched it in January of 2002. And so fast, fast
1: forward to today, we know you're in 49 states and, and in Canada, but not Mexico. We
0: have been in Mexico in Cabo San Lucas, but it just got, yeah. Yeah. got just really dangerous uh, for us to have mm. service technicians and just hard. And so we kind of decided not to grow. And so we uh, transitioned yeah. out of there and focused on the states and Canada.
1: Got it. Okay. How many employees do you have now?
0: Uh, We have 48 employees. I'm going to hand it over to Rusty and William
1: here in a second, but I've been riffing over the last 48 hours or so on corporate culture. And before I hand it off to these guys that are going to delve into more of the storytelling aspect of things and stewardship and so many other things that you and I have riffed on in the past, talk to me a little bit about corporate culture. What's culture look like at Tango? What might be different about being at Tango than another wireless provider?
0: Yeah. So, can I give you a little context for how I think about it, and then I can give you an answer? Please. So, I think one of the problems in just our culture in general is most of the institutions that are supposed to help form people are really damaged. The family, stressed, right? Educational, K-12 institutions, you know, so there's not a lot of positive formation happening in institutions that are supposed to be intermediaries, right? Government, not great, education, not great, family, not great. And so I wanted our company culture to be something that was positively formational to the person, right? Because if they can't get a healthy culture somewhere else, then we could be that. And so if you think like, okay, well, how do you work that out? So then I want that. And I think that's the opportunity when we have, you know, 40 to 50 hours of someone's life a week, that if they could be better for having worked at our company, then that would be the indicator of a good, you know, culture. So we, you know, everything is about, like, mission and values and culture. And so uh, how do we do that? I mean, our, so our values are really important. We found out we had military employees working for us in, out of San Antonio. And military people are used to very high code of conduct, a bunch of Marines, right? They know duty, honor, you know, simplify. And so that really started me thinking about, I need to have a mission that's worth fighting for that people are living for, and values that are worth fighting for. So under this positive formation, I had to have something that was compelling, right, for people who had laid down their life for the Constitution. So that was one. So it really made me think about, this has to be worth fighting for and living for. And then secondly, right, and they come from God, so we have some specific things that I think are important. They're important to me. Excellence, right? God is excellent right? Promise-keeping, God keeps his promises, so promise-keeping is one, right? Look in a culture where people don't keep their promises, and so what happens? You don't trust them. So God keeps his promises so you can trust him, right? And so being a part of a team, right? So you're not alone, God, we're never alone, right? In the kingdom of God, we're with God and we're with his people. Growing, right? That's about discipleship, right? We're never static, we're always to be growing in our Christ-likeness. And then agility, right? We adjust, And so those are our five core values. They're all important, right? And really this long relationship with people. So what we started learning is a lot of our military veterans had PTSD. And so this started to be like, well, so how can we help, right? And then so we started this because PTSD means, you know, very difficult emotional coping controls, lots of damage. So they started healing, right? These guys would heal. And then when we would hire new military veterans, They knew what would happen. So here's one of the stories. This guy, two months in, first job from the military, some 19-year-old millennials just chat, 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 right next to him in our call center, and just super irritating, right? And this guy grabs him in a headlock and says, hey, man. And then so the director of our knock is a vet, and he goes out there. Two other people go out there. They put their hands on this guy and say, hey, man, we don't do that here. And so they know what it's like to transition back. And so You know, we became a place where, if you were a veteran, we really wanted veterans because we loved their values and their ability to deploy them anywhere and know they would do the right thing. They're dependable, right? And But we also knew that anybody who's killed somebody or who's been wounded or seen their friends or brothers wounded has some type of injury, moral injury or whatever. But if we know that, we know how to care for them, right? So we're a military-friendly contractor. That's our designation. So we started, it was like, oh, well, that's one of the things I think we do for the world, right? To just being who we are. Has nothing to do with internet services. It's just the culture of doing that.
3: One of the things I want to switch to, one of the most profound things, and I think you have some thoughts on this that I've heard on our podcast, Patrick Lencioni, who many people may know, said on our podcast that one day it hit him that if his dad had had a better boss that his dad would have been a much better father. Just, gosh, I'll never forget that statement. And I've heard you talk about some level of this before, and I don't think we've ever dived in deep on this on the podcast. Could you talk a little bit about how you, as the CEO of 48 employees, think about Not only the decisions that you make that impact the business, of course, and and the profitability and and all of those things, but how it affects the people's lives and how it affects the employee, the family. Uh, I did this flow chart one time and I I looked at, if you have 50 employees, I think I did it on 25, you know, your company interacts with like a thousand people a day, right? Customers, vendors, coffee shops, lunches. So yours is probably two or 3000, right? A day. How do you think through that decision making and how it floats all the way down through the families? Uh, of your employees? So
0: it's probably been a journey for me. So we have 127 souls that are connected to those 48 employees. That's spouses, kids, anybody that's dependents, right? So one thing is just knowing. So I would probably say when I started, I've always had a heart for customers, right? And I've always had a heart for excellence. Probably haven't always had a heart for my employees. I probably loved customers more than I loved my employees. And so... That got changed, but I think God changed that, you know. So I think the first thing is I I love my employees. And so I think that perspective, so that's one. I used to write their names on a whiteboard, so I wouldn't use them as means. And I'd write their names, their spouses, and their kids. And I had to train myself to know my employees' names, to know who their family was. Because otherwise, it's like they're just, you know, sometimes you get so isolated. You're like, just do the work, you know. I don't don't care. (laughs) You know, go. So the way we thought about it is like, okay, so we want, we think about calling. So we try to put people in the right place in their jobs, right? So because if you, I believe that like God calls everybody to be, he gives them certain gifts and he calls them to work. So we really think about that's the right person, right seat mentality and making sure that people are in the right person, right seat. We do HR things like we help people with temperament assessments and things that will help them know about how God's made them. Don't use that like this. And then we've invited their spouses to do that, too, so that their spouses with a psychologist can learn about how, right? We do that on teams, right? Your work team. But what if we did that for our employees for their home team, too? So we've added this, hey, if you want to do your spouse or significant other, we will pay for it and we'll give you time with a psychologist and we won't be on the call. So, again, that helps them work better as a team, communication, understanding that better at home. So I think of myself as an elder of this community of people and a shepherd. So I think that leadership role is both of those things in the context of our organizational mission, right? The other side, I think the manager piece, if I thought about things that are broken in the industry, I think the manager is one of the big broken pieces, right? People generally don't leave companies, they leave managers. And so if you think about, so that fits with other authority figures, right? There's been terrible authority figures for most of my employees' lives. So they have a distrust of authority, which, you know, Henry, like, well, how can you trust God if you don't trust authority, right? So it goes back to, can I trust? And so we did some thinking about, well, what is a manager, you know, and how do we, knowing that people generally have some distrust and some brokenness because of bad authority, how do we work in that? And so you need to be trustworthy, right? So I think the manager role is one of the most important roles in our business because it goes back to people keeping. You know, I believe that a Christian manager is a discipler, right? A manager's role is to care for and develop people in the context of organizational mission, which is what discipleship is about. So I think one of the places we try to redeem our fixed things, right, is doing a lot more training around our people and leadership. Because, like, how do you get feedback if you don't trust the person? Oh, well, because this is this going to go in my performance reviews? Like, no, I care for you, and I, I think you need to work on this value. Or... I think your work effort, if you want to be great at this work, you need to do this, and can we agree on that, right? And so that's been one of the convictions I guess I have is that that manager role is really critical, and so we really invest in that and invest in a bigger vision about their impact on their lives. And so that to your point where, like I have three people who were orphans and they had terrible childhoods, didn't have dad, we have tons of father wound issues in our company, and... How do you give feedback as an authority figure when someone doesn't trust right and has been hurt by that? And so there's a sensitivity just to say, you know, oh, yeah, I know that about them. So I need to be gentler, kinder, right, and and adjust a little bit. Is that what you're thinking about?
3: It does. And and it's interesting, you know, the thing that's coming to mind, I'd love for you to speak to some of the entrepreneurs out there that may hear this and say, you know, that's interesting. Um, I believe some of that. I just don't have time for that. Uh, it's it's gonna I'm gonna lose profitability. I I have too many things to focus on. I mean, let us into your theology of this a little bit. So I'm gonna ask a handful of questions. So, one, does it lead to profitability? Does that not matter? Is it about caring for people, and we're gonna be excellent at doing that, and God takes care of the results? What's your theology of spending? I mean, this sounds like you spend a significant amount of time thinking about this and a significant amount of resources resourcing this. How do you think through why that's appropriate for Tango?
0: So there's a couple of layers, William. So I would say all of our services are delivered through people. So if our people aren't healthy and they don't understand the mission values, right? It's like we're loved by God, right? And because God has poured his love into us, we can spill out our love and love other people. And I don't think it's anything different inside of a company and your employees, right? If employees aren't poured into, it's difficult to care for customers, for example, if you have not been cared for. And so, one, if you want to have excellent customer care, you have to take care of your employees excellently to sustain that over the long haul. So our mission is to connect people for success. Those people are customers, I mean, employees, customers, right? Consumers and really anybody who touches us, right? So that's one. I think two, it's more expensive. I mean, the reality is, if you, you know, it's a little bit like what's the cost of sin? And it's the brokenness of people. And healing takes more time, takes time, takes extra resources, takes patience, all that's lost productivity, if you will. So the fact is, it does cost you a margin. But again, what's the purpose of your organization? This goes back to the theology. You know, and when I think about Jesus' parables around the parable of talents or the parable of a compassionate employer who said, you know what, I know you've only worked an hour and everybody else has worked today, but I'm still going to pay you a full day's wage, and because I want to and because I can, right? So there's a trade-off, you know, around productivity, you know, short term, but I guess that goes back into the mission of the organization and, and how you work that out. But, but it does reduce profitability to some extent.
2: So, Eric, you made a decision along the way to become an employee-owned company. So take us through that. What thoughts, questions about that? You know, how's the process gone? I'm assuming you're glad you did it. But if you were going to do it again, what would you have done differently?
0: Yeah. So I had a co-founder, I bought the co-founder out in like 2006 and had never received outside money. And so, but what was happening is I really wanted our employees, we call them ambassadors, so if I flip that in, we that's the nomenclature we use for employees as ambassador. But I wanted them to act like owners, right? We were talking about taking care of employees, taking care of customers, taking care of the company, right? That triple facta. And, but be like an owner, but you're not one. And I think I got convicted that that was pretty hypocritical of me to want that from them but not commission them in that way or have them be owners. So that was how it started. And then it was like, well, how do I have succession planning for myself? right? So there's these couple of things like I'm the only person here, so how does this mission and purpose continue and what's the exit plan? And so ownership for me was solving like, how do I actually have people be owners and how do I have a succession plan for the company? And that's what it did. So I went through and looked at a lot of ESOPs and all stuff. So I ended up doing grants, share grants. So we're not an ESOP because what I found is not everybody wants to do the work of an owner. And so some of these things didn't solve that. And so this allowed me to disciple people, great, right, So they would get the vision and values and join the work. The other aspect of it, which I think has been interesting. You know, my dad left me money to start a business and fail because he grew up in the depression and their business failed, and they had $10 at the end, right, and a big debt that took 10 more years for my grandfather to pay off. But when we look at generational wealth gaps and wealth and equity, what I've been telling my team is like, look, this money isn't for you, this is for your kids. If you actually do the right stuff, so when we look at kind of wealth gaps, and what's the, if you could leave something for your kid to help them go to college or get the start, maybe that you didn't have, that this might start the same thing that my dad gave to me, right, which was some capital, some care capital, right, and a way to go forward. And so I think people are made to own things. We are, since creation, both to enjoy it and take care of it. And if you don't own it, as I say, nobody washes a rental car. You don't see people washing rental cars, right, unless you work for the rental car company. So all those things, Rusty is a mix of, like, it's going well. We have... That's a great illustration.
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's such a great illustration. You don't see people washing rental cars. There's something to ownership. That's really good.
0: So I talked to my wife around like, hey, Eric, just be yourself. Don't try to make sound bites. And because, you know, you always sometimes feel like I got to be something cool. But that really resonated around like, yeah, so I want people to take care of it. And, you know, you learn how to take care of something. And so we're in that your own mission and values you own your role, we give people KPIs to own, you know, we let people participate in profit sharing. But if you've demonstrated all of those things, then you get invited into financial ownership of the company, right? And it's a little like, Henry, you know from family succession, in family you're passing heritage and values in addition to assets. And you need people to know the heritage and have the values so that they can take care of them consistent with the way that you would want to. And that takes time. That's great. So I've been working on this group of 13 people for four years, right? Before I felt like it was time.
2: Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Um, we talked about it at the top of the episode, Henry did, about storytelling and the importance of that. And we know, you know, you're involved with uh, Faith and Company, the videos, and we love them at FDE. And I, I think one of the reasons they're, they're so impactful is because they do tell great story. So, so just just riff on that for a little bit about Faith and Co. and what you see there. And, um, and some you know, nuggets of wisdom that you can impart to entrepreneurs about storytelling. Yeah,
0: so the reason Faith Co. came about is because I went to a retreat in 2013 where Jeff Van Duser, who'd written the book Why Business Matters to God, was speaking. Before that, that's the first time I, you know, if you think about my like, road to Damascus, that's the first time that I heard that like, Jesus called people to be business people, you could call them, right? And that God cares about business, you know, this whole theology of business. And so if you ask me why I'm on this show, that's probably why, like working that out, right? Calling and the purpose of business and how they integrate. So I think companies are really important because I, one is it's people's stories. And when you look at generally in the Christian church, the exemplars of the faith are not people like you or me. They're not business people. And so that's probably the biggest is the exemplars are practitioners that are trying to be faithful to what God's calling them to do. Uh, in the context of, like, this imagining business as a Christian vocation, right? And how would you actually create that? And what I found, Rusty, is that the people who are most blessed by it are the people who are being interviewed, just like y'all are blessing me today, to say, oh, actually, what you do matters. It's really good. Keep at it. You know, and so the people who were the exemplars film probably have been the biggest benefactors of it, and I've learned a lot from them. So that's what I'm probably most proud of is, you know, they're being catalyzed in their faith, just because somebody was equipping them by caring and affirming.
3: Oh, that's amazing, Eric. And I'm not going to make you choose among your children, but I might make you choose among your children. I've watched a lot of the Faith and Co. videos. Some are just absolutely incredible. So I'm going to ask this hopefully in the best way possible. When you think of some, and if you wanted to point our listeners to one that just had an impact on you, right, that you remember back and you say, well, that was a story I had never heard, or I hadn't heard it told that way. Where could our listeners go and, and maybe learn that story? I have to get
0: the name of it. It's a relatively new one, but it's about this guy in his 70s. And I don't know if you've seen this one, but he invented the mercantile exchanges. I mean, Goldman Sachs. Have you seen this one? I'll pull it up. And he said, like, God wanted him to take over his dad's patent portfolio and turn it into something. And and he's like, but he's called me not to raise money for it, (laughs) not to debt for it. And it's just this obedience to something, and then his wife says, he goes, "He goes, I would love to stop doing it, but I don't. But God hasn't released me from it." And his wife goes, "I would love for God to release you from it because I hate it, you know." He says, "But you know, it might not win. It could just be tooth go up in smoke, you know. All of this effort for twenty years could go up in smoke." But she says, "But you know what? In the Old Testament, that's what happened. They burned offerings, and they were a pleasing aroma to God." And I was like. What if, I was like, whoa, 20 years of life in this organization, and would it be okay if it was a pleasing offering if it just totally crashed? And so I think, though, my why, why, so it better be worth it. You know, that's probably the one that probably sits with me right now.
3: Amen. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. Well, unfortunately, we do have to move to a close, but before that, I want to verify one thing. Uh, my brother worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car for 10 years. People definitely Do not wash rental cars. I can say that with a big... (laughs) So you can feel free to use that slogan as much as you want. It's a fact, and we can always phone a friend, and we can call my brother to verify it if you need it. But as we do come to a close, one of the things we love to do is try to hear how the Word of God is impacting our guests' lives and how that could potentially impact our listeners' lives. And so what I'd love to invite you to do is share with our listeners where God has you in His Word. Uh, could be something this morning that He brought to light. could be something you've been studying for a season. Just welcome our listeners into your world and your walk with
0: God's Word. Thank you. There's probably two Scripture passages that, I, that are kind of impacting me right now, and one is kind of in Mark 1, when Jesus is baptized. And so it's, God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. And just for me to rest, that say God thinks about me like he loves me and he's pleased with me. And then I think the second one is in Hebrews around like, hold fast to our confession for, because God keeps his promises. And so I put those together around like, well, if God loves me, he thinks of me like that, he's pleased with me, and he keeps his promises, then I'm just free to serve. I don't need to strive. I don't need to please conform, Um, right? I'm not trying to make up for something. And so that's played out. I feel like I'm called to be a bearer of hope in this season. So how do I bear hope in the company, in these people's lives? So that's one. And then two, um making space for God to work. You know, I feel like that's not cramming time. You know, it's like, how do I create space in all of these realms for God to move? And so those are the two things that I've been really uh, resting in. God's love for me, you know.
3: Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your time. Thank you for sharing your story of what God's done through your faithfulness at Tango and through, through everyone that's involved there. Just extremely grateful for you. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are
2: very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over a 100 countries but it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer, Justin Foreman and program director, Johnny Wills, Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone
1: Church in San Francisco.